everybody! Welcome to another episode of Remember the Ots. I'm Courtney. And this is Thomas. And we're going to talk about everything from the 2000s, from chasing pavements to coming clean. From when Christopher Nolan rebooted Batman to when he made maybe the greatest superhero movie of all time, The Dark Knight. I thought of that just off the top of my head. Because <laughs> I didn't prepare for this one. <laughs> it's all good. Um, on today's episode, we are t- covering another movie from the Manic Pixie Dream Girl series, 500 Days of Summer. Holy This is a story of boy meets girl. They made a statue of us. The boy, Tom Hansen, grew up believing that he'd never truly be happy until the day he met the one. The girl, Summer Finn, did not share this belief. You should know up front, this is not a love story. I think we should stop seeing each other. Just like that? Just like that. Start from the beginning and tell us what happened. We are deep into the series. And as the movie will tell you, this is not a story about love, but we will tell you this is a story about unclear boundaries. Yeah, that's that's kind of the whole thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, Courtney. Yes, Tom. So, we have a lot to talk about with this movie. Yeah. Would you care to kind of give a quick, like a hyper quick description okay. of the plot so that people can be caught up? And we can just talk about the themes and all the spoilers. Yes, this one we're going to just go right into everything that happens around the movie, more so going into the depth of it scene by scene. Because the movie itself spoils it at the beginning. It says, spoiler, uh, this doesn't work. Right. And I do think, oddly, they try to convince you at one point that it does work, but it's not going to. They say it's not going to. I don't know. Okay. So... Short plot of the movie. This is a movie about two people meeting who have very different ideologies about love. One is head over heels for love. He loves the idea of love and thinks that his life won't truly start until he finds the one. And he falls in love with Summer, who actually has a completely different view of love, thinks it doesn't exist, thinks it's a fantasy, and just wants to have fun. Then the movie watches... You watch the movie, and it starts to fall apart, and it happens throughout a series of time jumps, going back and forth between present time, when he realizes that his relationship is over, to the beginning, and all of the moments in between. Yeah, the movie is kind of scattered. But I think it's deliberate, and it's kind of genius in the way it does that. Yeah. So... It actually, now that I've watched it much later on, reminds me a lot of Two for the Road with Audrey Hepburn and Albert Finney. I actually haven't seen that. It's it's sweet. Except for one moment where Albert Finney's character does do something bad. Oh, no. But, I know. But I, I do love them and the actual, like physical romance that they had in real life while they were shooting it. Oh, that's adorable. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's a good movie. Um, But there's something about this movie that feels like it's stuck in the 60s. This one? Yeah. Hmm. I think it relies so heavily on the style, which is great. I think that's its, like, strongest component is the style. Yeah. But it also kind of makes it seem 
like it's not in the right time period. You know, I can I can understand that. This was yeah. um, this was done. This was a first time director too. This was Mark Webb. This was his first movie. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, and he would go on to do the. Uh, he had um. He's. I think he's a really. I good know what you're going to say. He's a good filmmaker, and okay. you see a lot of his talents in this movie. Mm-hmm. But he would be unfortunately more forever known for making the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man series, which only had two films instead of its initial plan to have a whole universe, three movies, overambitious, but I blame Sony more than I do Mark. Yeah, I still liked the first one with Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone. But then did you see the second one? No, I didn't want to. Don't. (laughs) There's no need. It doesn't exist. No, no. So for me, it was go see the first, you know, just go see the only great, amazing Spider-Man movie. The only one. The only only one one that exists. Now we have Tom Holland. He's Spider-Man and he's just fine. He's he's Spider-Man. He is. Yeah. He also looks the most age appropriate. Well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is (laughs) true. Tobey Maguire was already a full grown man. Yeah. When he played Spider-Man. That's true. Um, yeah. I do want to say, uh, when it comes to 500 Days of Summer, I had mm-hmm. only ever seen it twice. Once a long time ago, and the <laughs> second time now. Okay. I watched it the first time many moons ago with, I think it was your, you had got us to watch it. It was you and I think a few friends of us. Okay. And we watched it. I remember being very emotionally upset <laughs> by the movie. Why is that, Tom? Oh. As our main character is also named Tom in this movie. Yeah. So I was young, inexperienced, and just kind of felt angry about the whole set of circumstances. I was like, ah, oh, this movie made me hate Zoe Deschanel, blah, 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 blah. Which is the, you know, the wrong takeaway. It's not to, like, villainize the, you know, her character in the movie. Mm-hmm. But I can comfortably say watching it as an adult now, many years later, with a lot of experience and a lot of pain and a lot of, you know, just life, I can tell you, uh, this movie still makes me very angry. <laughs> but, but I see what was happening and I see what was going on. And I think the reason I am angry as an adult is because I recognize certain behaviors and I look at both these characters, and I'm like, all right, come on. I un- oh. And then mostly him. Like, this was yeah. a fresh, like, take on him and going, dude, you know better. Like, what are you doing? Right. What are you doing? And then, um, I mean, like, like years later, people still, this is, a, you know, highly rated movie. People love this movie. And I think they even interviewed the cast years later. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt even says one of the misconceptions is that he's like, I don't want, you know, you weren't supposed to villainize, you know, Zoe Deschanel. Her summer's ca- it's summer. Yeah. Her character's name is right. Summer. I'm so dumb. The movie's called 500 Days of Summer. And I'm still like, <laughs> is her name Summer? No, I was going to say, um, I think in the same interview, Zoe Deschanel was saying that for years she felt like people were coming for her and saying, like, why wouldn't your character just be with him? He's so great. And she's like, I'm sorry. I thought that I was playing an interesting character. I thought this was very interesting. Now, one, I feel bad that she had to defend herself in that way because 
it's always amazing to me how when a female character makes a choice in a movie, the actress is always attacked, even though it's not her writing. No. No, yeah. yeah. This is all Mark Webb's fault. Right. So I think this more this movie can be seen in four planes of existence. Or there are four versions of watching this movie. Ah, that's interesting. Okay. So the first one is when you're a teenager like me when the movie first came out. We were just we just graduated high school and you are the kind of girl who likes these movies. The first time you see it, you just fall for the romanticism of it. Yeah. That's it. I love a movie about a sad breakup. I don't oh. know why. I just do. So I'm like, this is a visually stunning movie about a breakup with a soundtrack that is pure fire. Yeah. Then the second time you watch it, people are upset with Zoe Deschanel's character. They're like, well, why wouldn't Summer just want to be with him? And then the third viewing is the one that Joseph Gordon-Levitt presents, which is, no, actually, why should she want to be with him? I think people should take a look at this again. And then the fourth viewing, which is where I'm at now after watching it again, is that they're both not good for each other. Yeah, no, that, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Like, the scene that viscerally made me <laughs> annoyed. Because here's the thing, you're right. And there's a lot of ways we could look at this. And no, do I believe the original intention was to villainize, you know, Summer? Of course mm-hmm. not. Like, this movie's right. trying to show this guy kind of, you know, his obsession with love and falling in love with the idea of love inhibited mm-hmm. him from self-improvement and getting him to the right place he needed to be. But at the same time, at the same time, it's still through his perspective. We're still being told the movie from his view- point of view. Right. And to say, and this is where I would disagree with Mr. G- Gordon-Levitt, you can't expect the audience not to sympathize with the main character mm-hmm. when we are determined as an audience to typically sympathize for the main character unless the main character does something so appalling that right. like you know it's and in those those types of movies as brilliant as they can be don't do well because people have this conditioning to be sympathetic towards the main character right and i think also part of what makes this movie work but also what creates these confusing perspectives is the fact that the leads are played by two absolutely adorable and charming people yes we just want it they look good together we just want to see them together and this was like a time when they were both fairly popular i want to say or at least coming to this was the movie that sort of springs them into mainstream celebrity yeah yeah because at the time before this they were both sort of like coming up to it, they were revving up for their big break and they had been in a series of indie movies or small parts. Um, they actually were in a movie together as teenagers called Manic. I didn't see Manic. Wait, I heard about it. Was it was really good. Yeah. Um, I was also going to really say good. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, he was in, um, I just want to make sure I'm correct about this, Brick. Your Brick is awesome. I love Brick. Yeah. So Manic is an indie movie that the two of them were in together when they were much younger in 2001, and it's about teenagers at essentially a a juvenile mental institution, and they're both very good in it. I would Um, imagine. 
So that's why their chemistry is so natural in 500 Days of Summer, because they've already known each other for almost 10 years at this point. Yeah. So I think what makes it so difficult to understand that these two aren't really great people for each other, and also that the plot is messy, is because they're just so cute. That's true. It's maximum twee factor. Yeah, and um, I talked to a few people about this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, our shout out to our friend Claude. I love Claude. He's a brilliant man. Claude. Claude loves this movie. Does and he we, really? Yes, he does. And we were Aww, talking about Claude. it. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, I love both these characters. They're such good people. And I was like, Claude, no, they're not. No, they're not. They're both bad. They're both bad. The thing is, is that Zoe Deschanel and JGL are both people that we just instinctively want to root for. That's true. Yeah. They're adorable. Yeah. They're so cute. He gave me good points. And then mm-hmm. I will say this about the movie. The movie doesn't, like I, like I said at the top, it doesn't hide the fact from you. It tells you right away, this is about a breakup. Right. And it's a character study of a, you know, the male protagonist obsessed with this idea of love and how, you know, because that's the thing. The movie is told in fragments over what happened the course of 500 days of the 500 days of summer. Get it? Um, Even though they're not actually together for the whole 500 days. No. It's more just like his love for her is 500 days. Yeah, it's the 500 days of her impacting his life, which I totally understand. Like, a breakup doesn't end that emotional struggle or perspective you have coming out of a relationship. And I I agree with Claude that they're, you know, of course, like, we know this is going to fail. And she told him from the start. She says it at the beginning. She says it in the middle, and she said it at the end. She right. was honest about her intentions the entire time. However, mm-hmm. however, I will point to the fact that uh, despite being honest, she did allow a lot to happen that would cause someone who's already obsessed to just keep going. Like, why, why not tell him? Because this, this is later on in the movie. This is my big gripe. This is my gripe with Zoe... Well, Summer, not Zoe Deschanel. She's just an actress. It's not her fault. Right. My big gripe with Summer is they break up. They don't see each other for a little bit. They run into each other at a wedding. They have an amazing time. She dances with him. It's it's fairly romantic. And maybe, you know, it is his fault for reading into it like that. But you mm-hmm. can't avoid the fact that you're engaged and just not tell him that you're engaged and then invite him to your engagement party and not tell him it's an engagement party. Like, like I don't oh. know if that was supposed to be an engagement party, though. I think it was just like she invited him to a party and she was telling somebody about the engagement. That's even worse. Like, I don't know what's <laughs> no. worse because then it's like, OK, so she's been engaged even longer and just didn't bother telling him at all. Like her character's like i'm sorry i didn't think it mattered because in my world it doesn't matter it's like well that's not how everybody else's world works (laughs) right that's not fair because that is toying with his emotions after very clearly it has been stated see that's the thing that's where i think it's not just one or the other person is a problem because in the karaoke bar they're sitting there they're opposing each other and they're both trying to impose their view of love on the other person, yeah. it is not working. Neither of them leave seeing the other person's perspective more clearly, and then they continue to dive into this thing headfirst. Yeah, that was. This is for the record. Early on, this is when they first right. meet. Uh, 
she clearly says at this point, she goes, I don't believe in love. And he confesses that he does believe in love. Right. So she can't be that surprised. So like the whole movie, people are like, well, the whole time she's saying that she doesn't want a relationship and the whole time he's clearly saying he is too, like he wants a relationship. So it's not like he's hiding how he's feeling either. That's true. Right. And to throw, we're we're jumping along the timeline, but so does the movie. So it's fine. So does the movie. Uh, It's not like she wasn't aware. Like you can't play the dumb card. Like I don't remember. Cause like at the end of the movie, she even, cause the whole thing is she doesn't believe in love until she mm-hmm. finds the right person. And you know what? I agree. That's a beautiful message and it makes sense. Like the chemistry wasn't right. right. And it just wasn't with him. It wasn't with Tom. But she has. She even says, and you could take it as like a compliment. I kind of got very uh, passive aggressive and I said, you know, of course, well, you said it now. <laughs> She's like, you know, I. it just happened out of nowhere and... I fell in love with him, and the whole time I just kept thinking, Tom was right. And I'm like, well, well okay, right. thanks now for saying that. Yeah, she does say some things that would not make anybody feel better, and no. I think that's part of it coming from his perspective. Like, the part where she says, like, Tom, wait, you're still my best friend. It's so cringy, and they oh, intentionally want God. it to be that cringy. Um, but yeah, so, like, the scene at the wedding has been talked about quite a bit from other people as well because they say, like, why would she do this to somebody? The thing is, is that we all know somebody who would do that, male or female or anything else. They see an ex at a wedding. It's a fun, flirty situation, regardless of whether or not you want it to go anywhere. But at this point, we know as the viewer that Tom is loving this and is enjoying it. And seeing it as his chance to rekindle a relationship. Um, The scene is also a really good look into Summer's character as not being the stereotypical manic pixie dream girl. Because uh, when we look at Claire from Elizabethtown, most of her actions are just there to please the main character. But at this point... Yeah, and at this point in 500 Days of Summer, it's very clear that Summer is making choices for herself whether they are selfish or to sort of protect herself from falling in love, she is making choices for herself. Yes. Yeah, whereas at this point, like we discussed before we started recording, that JGL's character now has become the definition of what the male protagonist in a Manic Pixie Dream Girl movie is like. Yeah, and I think... I can't help but get emotionally like invested and, you know, feel these emotions because I've been through them and feel, you know, anger and annoyance. But it is kind of brilliant. This movie gives us the more real life version of this scenario. Right. You throw all your eggs into one basket. This person's supposed to be the end all be all of your life's problems. Like he's stuck at a greeting card, you know, job. He wants to be an architect, but he's just doing this job working for a, the wonderful Clark Gregg. Clark Gregg! He's uh, the best. Yes! So, and, like, he, yeah, he puts all of his eggs into this basket. She's supposed to be the one, and she's not. She's not at all, and she even says it herself. Like, you know, these things are real, just wasn't right for us, but it doesn't... <laughs> uh, right, and just because that hurts for him to hear it doesn't mean he gets what he wants. No. That's part of, I think that's what is happening in this movie is that both characters 
want the other character to change based on what they believe. And the problem is you cannot force somebody to change their opinions. You cannot stop free will. Yeah. I'm always wrestling with that topic. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, and I think, you know, the movies before this, all of the male protagonists kind of imply that their lives would get better with this love in their life. They kind of imply with Andrew that his mental state will be better and it does not matter what he's going through if he has Sam in his life. I feel like Joel has the most motivation for getting Clementine into his life because they already had an established, loving, committed relationship. Yeah. So that motivation seems more genuine to me. No, it's very genuine. Right. And then you've got... Orlando Baylor, who... Orlando Baylor. Just seems to suddenly not be suicidal. Yeah, but now we have a murder bike on the loose. Right, right. Now um, she's going to come to his home and stay with him, and she's going to be like, what the fuck is this murder bike doing here? Oh, it was just an invention I made. The murder bike. Yeah, and then she's going to be like, I regret doing all of this for you. I'm going to bounce. Yeah. Yeah. But so, so at this point, the main protagonist is like the definition of this character because he is completely motivated by love and has no other priorities in his life and feels like his life won't begin until he falls yeah. in love. If anything, I think one of the things that this movie suffers from, in which it's not its fault, but it suffers from coming out around this time and being a part of this category. Mm hmm. Because now you have this preconceived expectation. And not just saying like you or I, I'm saying like the audience. Right. Like there is this expectation like, okay, this is this type of movie. These are these types of characters. It's going to play out this way. And even falling for that trope, the movie itself, I will, you know, I think when this movie was made, it was fit into this discourse of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl trope of the male you know depressed male not going anywhere in life needing an answer so Mm -hmm. even though the overall message is that he need you know this love exists it's just this was not the right one this was not the real you know chance and throwing all your eggs into one basket is going to always end in failure it suffers from being still being from his perspective and being that we're going to sympathize with him even when the movie shows us blatantly and i think this was genius that like he only had the good memories. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was Chloe Grace Moretz who plays ah, his sister. Yes. Yeah, this was one of her first roles. So having also myself, a younger sister of that age, like Gap. Who is very precocious and also very smart. I understand, like, it, it was very relatable to me. But yeah. there was that brilliant moment where he, he has to really then go and think back on all these positive memories and kind of see them for what they were. And from the... The whole time she was cold, distant. She was never really into him. And he only, you know, he fantasized and fetishized Mm -hmm. the fantasy that he wanted out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if anything, this movie does show you, like, what Clementine says in Eternal Sunshine of, like, I'm just a fucked up girl looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Tom, JGL, is the person who is, like, Okay, here you go. I'm going to assign you my life. Fix it for me. Yep. And he does that to Summer. And Summer is exactly the person who says, no, I'm not responsible for this. And nor yeah. should she be. And they, he falls in love with her because of, and, and Chloe Great Smart kind of brilliantly says it, you fell in love with her for some contrived, stupid reason. 
It yeah, was because they both like the Smiths. <laughs> Oh yeah, we uh, we need to talk about the Smiths in conjunction with this movie. We do. Yeah, because part of what makes this movie so successful is the style. And the style is, you know, this amalgamation of everything that was becoming popular in the time. And I would say it's sort of this like beginning hipster, pre-hipster sort of rumblings that sort of make this happen. It's really strange to me because I don't know how these things happen where just, I, and I was one of these kids too, who suddenly fell in love with the Smiths in high school and the aunts and just of no pop culture reference. I had loved the Smiths before this movie came out. It was part of the reason I wanted to see it, but I started to listen to The Smiths because I was going through my parents' CDs and I found uh, Best of The Smiths. Mm. So I asked my parents, I'm like, who are The Smiths? And they were like, we have no idea what you're talking about. And I was like, but you have a CD. Where did this come from? And then I realized it was from my uncle who had always given me good 80s music. And, oh, that's excellent. Yeah, and they just sort of um, unfortunately tossed it aside like some people do when you get a cd from somebody you're not that interested in listening to so uh, it's it's strange to me how at this time of no faults of pop culture i started listening to the smiths but then also so did my best friend and then so did joe and you've got all these people who start listening to the same thing for whatever reason they do to the point that a movie like 500 Days of Summer is picking up on it as a thing that teenagers are interested in and make it a component of their movie. Then it becomes mainstream. Now everybody knows the Smiths and everyone's listening to the Smiths. Um, interesting fact. Um, I did not listen to the Smiths at the time. Right. I actually only started very recently. Right. I did it. I started listening to the Smiths in conjunction with going on a deep dive of the cramps. Yes. Hey guys, it's Tom here again with another editor's note. In this episode, I talk about the Smiths being influenced by the Cramps. Well, I'm here to kind of give more context to that because you can't just type in Smiths influenced by the Cramps. Nothing really shows up. However, it is worth noting that the vocalist of the Smiths, Morrissey, formed a Cramps fan club in the late 70s called the Legion of the Cramps. However, that kind of fell apart, and that's leading into him becoming one of the founding members of the Smiths. Cramps, one of my favorite bands. I'm uh, geeking out on them right now, so I kind of want to give them a quick plug. Not that they need my validation whatsoever. A few notable albums I want to point out are Psychedelic Jungle, featuring one of my favorite songs, Goo Goo Muck. They also have uh, Songs the Lord Taught Us, with the song I Was a Teenage Werewolf. They've done covers such as Surfin' Bird and worked with Wanda Jackson on a 
redo of the song Funnel of Love, which is a great song. Also, if you're a fan of SpongeBob, you've definitely heard at least Lexi, the frontman for the Cramps, as they did his short segment with an puppeteered bird band called the Bird Brains with the song Underwater Sun. I'm gonna play that for right now. It's pretty awesome. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, rock the Bird Brains! Come with me to the land I love. It's not right here down the street or up above. It's down below in the deep blue sea. Where SpongeBob lives and the fun is always free. Down, down, down to the bottom of the sea. Where our salty friend SpongeBob waits for you and me. Right. And also, this movie takes from other bands that I really loved at this point. By the time I was 14, I had a Clash hat. And in 500 Days of Summer, Joseph Gordon-Levitt sings Stand By Me by The Clash. And then I was also really into the Pixies. He sings Here Comes Your Man. And so it's strange to me how these things just happen, that there's just a generation of kids who just at some point decided they wanted to listen to these bands. Maybe it's an aversion to pop punk and sort of like a retreat to old rock music and seeing what else is out there. I think, but it, yeah. If if I may, mm-hmm. because you are an emo person, I am. Yeah, um, I like sad things. In the aughts, we had our own branch of pop punk, and then you know a new wave of post punk, emo, mm-hmm. and then hardcore. But a lot of that dates back to the eighties. Mm-hmm. Like emo as a type of genre stems out of a branch of hardcore. So I would imagine that a lot of this revival comes during this time where people are diving into more, you know, emotional style punk music, right? you know, you know, adapting the style, adapting the look. And with the, I think with really what helped it was the, on the internet, social media, and two, the digitalization of music, making it way more available. Mm. So you have a whole generation of kids who are emo kids listening to a lot of the bands in the aughts, then going to the bands that influenced those bands. Because mm. you got to think like a lot of these bands, like the, you know, the Smiths, the Clash, and everything like that, influenced a lot of the bands in the, in the aughts. Right. And then Panic at the Disco gets their name from Panic by the Smiths. And I think also, you know, it makes a lot of sense that hipster culture became a thing because I was thinking about what else was popular at this time and at this time digitizing music suddenly became this new technology that everyone was pumped about. You know, everybody had iPods and music players. The Zune? The Zune. I still love the Zune. I will will die defending the Zune. It was an MP3 player. No one can fault you for that. Yeah, and it also had great video playing capabilities. We are not Apple loyalists here. No, (laughs) but that's the thing. I think as these new technologies were blossoming before our eyes, so was this aversion to it. And I think that's why certain things like 
going to record stores became popular, old film, and all of those are components that are in this movie. Oh, yeah. that's I, that, I love that scene when they were in the record shop. And what's funny yeah. is we get two versions of that. We get his romanticized right. version and then the real version. But I love that because I'm doing it now as an adult man. I bought a vinyl player and I've been browsing record shops. And there is that romanticized element to it. I think also, you know, once we started like digitizing music and putting it into our computers, we realized that we still need that tactile sensation of touching something that somebody created. The analog, you know, Mm -hmm. for it. Also what leads into the hipster culture as well that this movie tackles, but doesn't tackle well or clearly as part of the whole unclear boundaries thing is the idea of being friends with benefits or polyamory. Hmm. Because I think that at some point that sort of becomes a hipster stereotype. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Non-committal. Right. So in this movie, you've got the female protagonist who says she doesn't want a relationship. But, excuse me for thinking this, they're in a relationship. Oh, yeah, no, 100%. Yeah, <laughs> they're in they a just, relationship. They continue their affair as a committed relationship. People in the office know that they're doing stuff. Everyone and knows they're doing stuff. Everyone knows they're doing stuff. They're committed to each other. We have this idea that they're not sleeping with anybody else. Yeah. And if she is sleeping with anybody else, we won't know that because it's through JGL's perspective. Yeah. And here's my thing. Here's another Mm. thing I want to get off my chest to make sure everyone doesn't think I'm doing this. I don't believe they should be together at all. I'm not one of the people that's like, oh, what? Oh, now you want to get married when you had Joseph Gordon? It's like, no, 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 no. That's not the point. They weren't meant to be. That's fine. My right. issues with her as a person is, just, you know, is the opposite reasons of my issues with him as a person. He is overambitious, obsessed, and presumptuous, and she's uh, aloof <laughs> and yeah. non. She's not concerned about other people's. Like, I'm not trying to say she's a sociopath. I'm glad you brought not, that up, though. But she's very not like the fact that she could break up with him and be like, "I hope you're still my best friend." It's like. Are you not aware of how other people understand? Like, yeah, just because you're being honest and you you put it best, he was being honest as well. Yeah. She willingly continued this relationship, very aware of his intentions, you know, just as much as he was aware of her intentions. And yeah. was just like, oh, most people operate under the same operating system I do, right? Like, he shouldn't be mad that I'm engaged. I just don't have to tell him that I'm in gauged right and i think i don't know there's something about the character choices for summer that confused me because at the beginning of the film they tell you that she is somebody who has essentially no feelings no which makes her sound like a sociopath yes she can cut off her hair and feel nothing towards it She doesn't care about love. And she has this sort of monotone composure, which I have seen in people who play it cool. I've seen it in people who are actually very anxious all the time. So I don't want to say that she's deadpan because I'm not sure what the 
decision was to make her seem like that. I know that there have been other movies where Zoe Deschanel is very, like, calm and deadpan or monotone. Yeah. But then also you see her crying in the movie theater, wanting to have fun, laughing, singing. So it's like, which is it? Is she this person who doesn't feel anything? Or is it somebody who is actually really emotional she just doesn't want to put her emotions into others that's true i can see that so that's Um, where i'm conflicted with her also i wanted to bring up you brought up that movie scene because they went to watch um the graduate yes and the movie even tells us the beginning he misinterprets the graduate right he romanticizes the graduate he loves the idea that they despite all odds pick up and run away right but she cries and i think there's that brilliant moment where where he only took it as a romantic movie, she sees it for what it is. Two people who aren't necessarily meant for each other trapping each other in this decision. Right. Because that's that's really the end of The Graduate. It's not romantic. They get on the bus. They run away. She she abandons her fiancé at the altar, Mm. runs away with him. They get on a bus, and then they just have that awkward silence, and then the song comes on, and then they're just like, well, now what? Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. And the thing is, too, when you are at that point where you are ready to break up with a person who still wants to be with you, it can feel like a trap. And maybe that's the moment where she realizes like, oh, I need to do this thing because I am in a committed relationship. I am in this thing that I didn't want from the beginning and I need to get out. But I just get confused because one minute they say that she doesn't have feelings and then the next minute she's crying. So obviously she does have feelings. Yeah, they did kind of really... I think that's another uh, consequence of of the time. They mm-hmm. really play into that. Like, they pick Zoe Dejanel, mm-hmm. who's a great actress, but is known for that kind of quirky character, kind of, like you're saying. And then she just, you know, you know, she has no feelings. She cuts off her hair. She's not concerned about the things like other people are concerned about. And then all right. of a sudden, she is. Right. And it's funny because directly after this, she gets New Girl, which is essentially her being... Manic Pixie Dream Girl meets Lucille Ball. And mm-hmm. I, I do, at the time, remember thinking, like, oh, my God, she's so annoying on the show. But now that I go back, I rewatched it during the pandemic, and I'm like, oh, you know what? She's playing the real version of what a Manic Pixie Dream Girl would be like. People yeah. would not find this charming. They would not find it adorable. She's very socially awkward, and I'm here for this. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. But... I don't know. There's something about the way that they portray Summer in the movie that I'm like, I don't think that they're very clear about what they want to do with her either. And I think, yeah, that's kind of the problem with the trope is that she is a stronger character Mm -hmm. than other movies. She has more agency, but she's not clearly defined. And we're still seeing her only through Tom's perspective. And I think that leads into the next thing that I wanted to talk about. Mm. Which I think that this movie tries to tackle, but because of when the movie came out, they don't do it very well, is gender roles. Oh my god, yes. I want yeah. They do... Maybe it's because we're under the the more recent 2020 you know, perspective and we are looking at gender as more of a spectrum of construction rather than an absolute binary. 
But this movie is very gendered, like even down to the color choices. Like there are very clear distinctions between blue and pinks. Right. And I know that they use blue to make uh, Zoe Deschanel's eyes pop. But I also listened to a podcast called Rom-Com Killjoy that sort of looked at the blue as like, well, in this movie he's the one who is in love, which is usually associated with a female character, right? And then Mm -hmm. she kind of plays the role as, like, this dominant male character who doesn't... Like, she makes some of the more dominant choices associated with a male lead. She goes in for the kiss, she doesn't want something serious, and she's always wearing blue, a color that is pretty notoriously known for boys. Yeah. Yeah. But then every time that she does sort of assert herself in this way that a male character normally would be, the men in the movie jump to saying she's a slut or she's a lesbian or she must be a robot. And I'm like, these jokes are so bad now. Yeah, they don't age well. The no. Very, the very, it's a very gendered perspective throughout the whole movie. Right. And these, it's so weird. Oh my God. And it's almost like, they emphasize and demonize it because then she does better when she fits into her gender role by all of a sudden accepting, I'm just going to get married now. Right. And then it's so easy to pin her as being indecisive and making really important life decisions very brashly. And that kind of annoys me. I mean, I do think that if you break down the timeline, she... Their relationship isn't long, but neither is her relationship before she gets married. There, I think she was with that guy for like 50 days. Right. It's not a long time. It's very short. It's very short. Um, that doesn't help her character with how we view people should spend a longer time with their mate before they decide to get engaged. But we all know people who have fallen in love and had kids and gotten married so quickly with somebody. Oh, yeah. Especially <laughs> after... Yes. You know yeah. people. When I worked in bridal, I knew people. Yeah. It's weird. Right. I don't it know. just it, happens. Yeah. And maybe there is this just, you know, who am I going to judge? Like, right. maybe there is this. I keep going back to Susan Sarandon in Elizabethtown, <gasps> who does the best job at describing how unpredictable and chaotic love can be. Right. Because, like, she tells that story. And it, I love her, and I love that monologue. It's the only thing worth it for me in that movie. I know. It's Susan Sarandon's five-minute speech about I love. Know. My goodness. It, it perfectly captures <laughs> Yeah. the, ran, you know, just the chaotic, random nature of how love is. And how fun it can be. Yeah. So I can't necessarily judge someone, but I... it. You're right. In this, in the context of this movie, it does not look good to have her just jump from Tom to another guy she met at a like at a deli, yeah. And then fifty days later, gets engaged and just doesn't bother to tell Tom her ex, who she very clearly knew had fallen head over heels for her, right. and then she gives him this romantic evening and just goes, "I thought it was nice." Yeah, I was like, and- "Uh, that's not just nice. That's leading." When they break up, she says he's her best friend and then doesn't invite him to the wedding. So you know. No. So you know he has feelings for you, Summer. Summer. Right. 
Also, does she have any friends? Like, she, we don't see her have a single friend. No, you're right. And that's not fair. Like, she has the party, but we don't know any of those people. They're all her, like, fiancé's friends. We know his friends. Yeah. Jeffrey Aaron again. <laughs> yep. Also, I don't know if you caught this, um, but I, I think that this is kind of cute. So, Clark Gregg is in this movie. Yes, he is. And then, I don't know the actress's name, and I feel bad that I don't. But, so Clark Gregg gets into a show with Julia Louis-Dreyfus called The New Adventures of Old Christine. And they play divorcees, or divorcees, who, he marries a new Christine. They call her the new Christine. It's just his second wife is named Christine. And she is played by Cindy from Elizabethtown, from Chuck and Cindy. Yeah. Oh, man. So, um... It was a fun little, like, wink having these movies back to back. And also that, like, Kirsten Dunst was in Eternal Sunshine and then we covered Elizabethtown. But then also Jeffrey Arend is the next person to join our little Manic Pixie Dream Girl universe. Oh, man. Yeah. The Manic Pixie Dream Girl universe, that is something. This is the second to last movie, too. We're deep in it at this point. We're deep. We're deep. And I think that's why you've got characters like Tom, JGL's Tom, who is very clearly this, like, definitive result of the three leading men before him. And then also at this point, you've got Summer, who sort of becomes a more selfish version of the other girls. Yeah. yeah. I don't even want to, like, I don't want to say she's selfish. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it, I think this movie only suffers from the fact that it's still in this era of the male gaze like not Mm -hmm. i'm not even trying to go on like a huge thing about the male gaze i'm just it's very abundantly clear we're getting his perspective of the story we can look at it and say yes there is a lot going on and we need to think about it critically and the movie is doing that Mm -hmm. but like there's still (sighs) i will say emotions aside because Mm -hmm. it did get me riled up i was like oh come on and i was like tom what are you doing i was like you don't know better and then i'm like (laughs) but then i'm like summer you're just gonna not tell him you're engaged what the fuck but then i will say that what the movie does you know we see you know tom's montage of self-improvement he's going to interviews to become you know an architect self-improvement montage self-improvement montage which i i think i said this for the elizabethtown episode the only problem i have with these moments is that yes it's important to self-improve but these are very niche specific male characters that can only afford to do this coming from the class you know socioeconomic class that they do oh yes like he just quits his you know in a very cringy nowadays almost incelly like very like man-child way quits his job at the the you know the greeting card factory yeah can I say that um, going back and watching this movie, I realized how thoughtful Clark Gregg as a boss was. He's the best boss. Yeah, because he's actually saying to him, like, listen, man, we, we all kind of know you had this breakup. Are, are you okay? How about you channel that to your work and cover this area? That's a very thoughtful boss. Yeah, most companies would have full right to just fire him for having an affair with somebody in office. Right. And in Clark Gregg, like it's so. Maybe it's also another thing that just didn't age in the last ten years. 
no one thinks that they can work for a place and get that much leniency and then get up and quit like it's the greeting card company's fault not your own fault like yeah not everyone reads a greeting card believes in the same you know it is blinded by the same things you are right and also like a job at a greeting card company doesn't sound terrible not at all that's my hot take it's there's nothing wrong with like he really his ambitions were architecture and we understand and we know that Ugh, of course it's architecture though yeah it's you know <laughs> architecture. might as well be a shoe designer yeah oh right yeah 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 billion dollar shoe designer but um so like even that it suffers from like the it has to be eccentric and at the time, I'm sure they thought this is going to be fun and edgy and cool. And we're saying we're giving a message like, no, you know, these are all contrived feelings, man. Screw greeting cards. He's Nowadays, stuck in an office yeah. with a good job and people who like to throw nice office parties. Yeah. And nowadays we look at him, we're like, you took that shit for granted, you motherfucker. I would <laughs> like, love to work so- at a greeting card company. That sounds so great. Yeah. And... I get it. Like, yes, you should pursue your own dreams. But at the same time, like that, that's just him quitting was so cringy. And I really mean it when I say incel-y. Like it is. Yeah. Incel as a term didn't exist at a time. But there is no way you can't watch that scene and go like, what is this fucking like Israel Keys monologue? Like, Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that the thing that this movie does get right and and I, I still like, there's a lot of this movie that, like, when I started it, I thought to myself, I think that my view of this movie is going to be shattered. Like, despite the three planes of existence that I had known about of this movie, I was still kind of at one. I never got to demonizing one per, one protagonist over the other, but... Once I sat down for it this time, I was like, I don't think I'm going to like this movie anymore. And that's because of all the things that we've already discussed. But the thing that I, I did realize I still really love about this movie is the thing about relationships. Any of these moments about just how you feel in a relationship, regardless of the context, I think are incredibly accurate. Yeah. And I will say what the movie did, like by the, unlike Elizabethtown, mm-hmm. when I got to the end of this movie, the final scene where... Like I said, I was criticizing the montage and him quitting work and his right. incel behavior. He still manages to invest that energy and obsession into architecture. And he's bettering going, himself. Yeah, and he's going to these job interviews and he meets a girl and he just takes a chance, like a nonchalant chance where he doesn't think. Like when we when he met Summer, he immediately was like, I need to do this. Like he was already obsessed. He was right. already like, head over heels with the the idea of her because she also listens to the smiths like that's a qualifier for a perfect match didn't you know i I thought liking typo negative was a perfect match no clearly i was wrong wrong but so morrissey even though he's also not a very good person but so but then he just he takes the chance he goes hey it could or it couldn't. Like, we see it. He, we see the development. And I think that's really due to Joseph Gordon-Levitt's really good acting. He he takes the risk hesitantly, knowing that it could be nothing. Like, he knows. it's He's learned. He's like, this could be something or it could be nothing. He takes the chance. 
he asks her for coffee and she says fuck it and then they're like cool and then she she's like my name's autumn yeah i'm yeah. not gonna lie like i know it's a little dorky but like unlike elizabeth town the ending of this movie after all the emotions and anger and like ah frustrations this movie did leave me smiling i was like you know what i'm okay right and i think that also has its own like three stages of like huh cute and then the second one is like ah fuck this i can't believe they made a name autumn and then the third one is like you know what it's intentionally tongue-in-cheek sure why not? Yeah, it's intentionally, and I think what's nice about it being tongue in cheek is that it's literally prodding at the audience, going like, you know, don't believe in this sort of like destiny thing. But at the same time, it's like, isn't life funny like that? And it is. Yeah. Life is funny like that. Yeah, it's not necessarily like you should do everything based on fate and destiny, but also like look forward to life's funny little coincidences. Yes. So. At the end of this movie, what did I learn? Mm -hmm. um, things I already knew. Don't romanticize and fall in love with someone for liking the same band as you. Nope. That's bad. Mm-mm. That's don't not do the it. only qualifier for a good partner. In fact, any of you who have a band in your dating app, you should probably put, this isn't the only reason you could fall in love with me. You know, it'd be a fun segment. It's a great idea. Yeah. Let's, um, we can list the, the very like a list of like three things you should never include in your dating profile as a make it or break it sort of thing. Ooh, I love this because I have zero experience with dating apps and I have plenty and they're all bad. Oh, fantastic. We can also we can also ask some other people too that we know that are on some dating apps. I've heard some very wonderful things. And by wonderful I mean very awkward and uncomfortable laughing. Mm. <laughs> um but yes, I, I think this is a segment that we should do. Yes, um, I'm willing to drop three things right now. Do it. The the don'ts don't include, and these are like the when you're on a dating app. I feel like your make it or break it characteristics should not be uh, defined by your bands, which we learned from this movie. Yeah. Um, I love this show, but uh, the office is not a character trait to define yourself as, and that. Just saying that you love The Office does not mean that you present anything interesting about yourself. Tom, I do love The Office, though. I know, but that's like no, everyone does. I know. Everyone does. But if you I put... love The Office, too, but yes, I don't like but... Friends. <laughs> okay, Office or Friends. I'll say I know. That. It's either one or the other, unfortunately. It's not hate for the shows, but uh, The Office and Friends is not a character trait to define yourself as on a dating site. Right. If and... you say you love The Office, it should be because of something about the show, not just yes. like, just give me any reason and that's fine. Let's put it this way. Yeah. If you're going on a date with someone, you can reasonably assume they like The Office. Right, exactly. Yeah. Don't put it on your dating profile as a thing to catch people's attention. Third, uh, travel. Yeah. <laughs> I am so sick and tired of that being an interesting thing. Like, I love to travel, but I'd rather know about the places you want to go, not that you just like to travel. Especially if these are like you going to other countries and taking pictures of you trying to help. <laughs> Oh, yes, we've talked about this before. Don't do that. Yeah. Don't yeah, these um uh don't post cringy white savior pictures. Yeah, these are my contrived things that I hate about dating profiles and that you should avoid to do try people, and not Do people put those on their dating apps? 
Yes, they do. No, they don't. Yeah. Really? They, they, yeah. Oh, goodness. Oh, Tom, I'm so sorry. Uh, I haven't been on one in a while and don't plan on going back. So Fair. But those are that's my advice. Courtney, do you okay. want to give your top three things to not include as personality traits on a dating website? Um, can I put a do? Can I put do's? Yeah, you know what? Why don't you do do's? Okay. I'm being the cynical one today, so. No, but you have every right to because, like, I don't know any of this stuff. So it's good for, like, I, I don't think I can say don't. I mean, I did say, like, the don't add your band as a type of personality. But still, I feel like you're. Uh, you you are a more qualified consultant in that aspect. Okay. Um, do uh, do list the places you want to travel to. Okay, that's better than I, just travel, yeah. Yeah, because that can be a really fun conversation and a thing that you can connect on or understand about the person better, like why they want to go to those places. Do put something a little bit different about yourself. Uh, Nicole Byer on her podcast always says that when she messages somebody, she starts with a question. Let's just say you were doing nothing at home and then a penguin walked into the room. What would you do? That's actually really funny. That's really funny. And also she usually judges what somebody, like how a date would go based on their response. Fair. And third do... Put something that you actually do like to do. And I'm not talking about video games. I'm not talking about posting pictures on Instagram in an artsy way or cooking. I just mean something that is a little bit different that you like to do that people wouldn't normally see on your resume or know about you right away. Like, I'm really good at balancing books on my head. That's actually pretty cool. Right. And I think that that would be more interesting is like putting something that you like to do that's a little different. Like we could put, I like podcasting. I make a podcast. Something like that. Oh my God. I just had another brilliant idea. What? Because um, my issue with Tom is that he is really kind of like, not, he's not an incel. Yeah. But he presents incel behavior. So I'm going to go to the hashtag Reddit uh, nice guy. yes this was a big problem to read some of the to read some of the most cringy images of nice guys yes because nice guys are the worst there's also one for nice girls but i think nice guys are funnier hold on let's see uh nice nice girls are just sort of like taylor swift and you belong with me and that's about it oh my god let's see nice guys that's the thing. JGL plays the kind of guy that's like, well, I'm a nice guy. Why don't I get to be in love? And actually, he can be a huge dick when he's not okay. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. That is the definition. Let's see. This one's great. Okay. Uh, this guy messages a girl. Uh, Hello, beautiful girl. Oh, no. You are so beautiful. No. Let's be friends. No, we won't. Don't do that. Hey. Oh, this goes from zero to 100 real quick. Okay. Hey, can you throw me your nude? Can you answer? Whatever. I give you. You throw me your naked picture. Can you throw me your nude? And then he says, fuck you. And that's it. Oh, perfect. That's exactly how that would go. Forward slash nice guys. Mm -hmm. But he was such a nice guy. I don't understand why she didn't want to throw him the nude. 
Yeah, I don't know how she would throw it anyways. Would she throw oh her phone god. at him? Oh my god. Here Maybe. you go. Here's another one. This one's beautiful. Um, this one's specifically a Snapchat conversation. Oh boy. I'm not entirely sure how long I'm supposed to wait to message you, but I had a nice time tonight and I look forward to seeing you again. He puts emojis. She says, I had fun too. Thank you for dinner. He responds, no problem. Anytime. So first impression, interested in a second date. Normally I wouldn't even ask, but for some reason I feel like this one of those, hey, let him down kind of easy things. And then she's like, I think you're a nice guy and I had fun, but I'm going to be completely honest. I don't think we have any chemistry. He responds, I mean, you were laughing at everything I said. So either it was fake or there is chemistry. Why don't you just, de- why are you denying it? Oh, oh my God. God. Yeah, nice there's, guys. there's nothing uh, women love more than, and I'm, I'm speaking very generally, I should say, uh, me specifically, there's nothing I love more than somebody telling me how I feel and telling me what I want. It's oh so, it's so attractive when people do that. Let these boys need help. Yeah, yeah. I, I forget. I honestly, like, we didn't even touch on the whole nice guy aspect of JGL's character in this. But it, it's true. As soon as things... And that's what I mean about, like, the humor in this movie is that the second that Jeffrey Aaron is like, dude, the girl you like is a total bitch. I tried talking to her and she was not having it. And then JGL is like, fucking skank. And it's like, whoa, whoa. Yeah. That's uncalled for. Whoa. First of all, what does being chatty have to do with her sexuality? Two, that's none of your business. And that has nothing to do with the other thing. She's at work. Maybe she doesn't feel like talking to him. Oh, absolutely. Sometimes I don't feel like talking either. Yeah. I didn't know that had anything to do with the amount of partners that I've had. These nice boy messages are like bringing back so many bad memories from high school. Oh, we knew the ultimate uh, nice guy. Oh, we knew a few, Tom. We knew a few. This guy messaged a girl on Facebook. He said, hey, beautiful. No. She didn't respond for a few hours. May God ignore you like you ignored my greeting. Jesus. (laughs) What? (laughs) I would love for her to respond, I'm an atheist. Simp. Oh my goodness. Oh my god. <laughs> it's all a bunch of simps. I, I do want to go back to a little bit though. Like I, I did like the actual like relationship elements of this movie in the way that like they started the movie with the video of them as children or like who is supposed to be them as children because it's like you do spend your entire life without the person that you love like there's a whole life before that person even enters your life and that person has no idea what that was like so it's like these two are living their separate lives and then eventually come to meet i i do really like that and i still love the scene about how he's going to the party and he has expectations for how it's gonna go and then he's heartbroken in the end because regardless of what he does wrong or what Summer does wrong, we've all done that at some point in our lives with somebody that we care about. We have these expectations about how an event is going to go and then it just crushes your soul when it doesn't work out like that. Yeah, no, I get that completely. And that mm-hmm. that was a beautiful moment. I did really like that scene where we see the expectation versus reality. 
I mean, it was a it was an angering scene because again, like she just forgot to tell him that she's engaged oh. and didn't think it was important. But that's an important thing that like even me as just someone who's romanticized these feelings understands that like these things don't play out like they like you expect, and you should be thinking more about yourself and not this romanticized idea. And also, part of me likes that flaw in Summer because it's a real person flaw. Yeah. All of the flaws in the female protagonists in the movies before this are all like, well, I'm just quirky and I'm annoying or I enter your space bubble when you don't ask me to. But it's like, no, she actually did something that all of us have, like, not done on the same level. But, like, if we want to flirt with somebody we shouldn't be flirting with, we don't tell them that, like, there's somebody else in the picture. Yeah, it's she is a more grounded version of the because you're right that especially like i'll say that the worst one is elizabeth town she is quite <laughs> literally the fantasized version of what someone's soul like like fetishized ideal of the manic pixie dream girl is she's literally a character who comes from the sky yes she's literally in the sky in the sky and comes down and is like i'm gonna fix all your I made this quirky collage map with mix CDs in a couple of hours. 30 minutes. I would say 30 minutes. The time span was very short. You think so? Yeah. I don't know. But um, I found one more image. It's not so much... Um, okay. This one's more of a simp uh, joke, but I, I'm going to go with it. For those who are unaware, simp... I'm not necessarily a fan of the term. Okay. But it does kind of throw back at making fun of incelly types. It's you can either take it as uh, suckers. Well, I'm trying to remember what simp stood for. I knew it off the top of my head, but I forgot. Oh, it stands for something. Yeah, simp stands for. I thought it sort of was like a, a a male version, or not not male version, but a simp. I kind of pictured it as somebody who's basic, like somebody who's simple, like their style oh. is simple. Their whole thing is basic. No, it's well, it that could apply, but what simp stands for is sucker idolizing mediocre people or pussy huh. depending on who you're asking fair enough uh this one is uh anakin turned to the dark side killed younglings and betrayed the jedi order for a girl making him the galaxy's biggest simp that's funny yeah he hates sand he does yeah that's what they what should is. have done right they should yeah. have just attacked him with sand he doesn't just like throws it. throws sand in his eyes. Yeah, he's like, wow, wow. And then you just throw a bag of sand at him. He's like, oh my god, I hate this shit. And that's it. Galaxy problem solved. Yes. You're welcome, so, universe. <laughs> we've done a good cover, you know, we've done a good job at covering the movie. Do you want to get into the music for this? I do, I do. Um, So... Unlike the other two uh, Man Who Picks a Dream Girl movies that we covered, this was another soundtrack that hit it really big, similar to the Garden State soundtrack. And the biggest song of them all, surprisingly, I had to think about it because I was like, okay, this, this soundtrack as a whole did become very popular and a lot of the music, including the Smiths, did become very mainstream after this. But I was thinking about it and I realized that the song that became the biggest hit was Sweet Disposition by The Temper Trap. Mm. I still love this music. I think it's so good. Um, and it's a really good song. 
But after this movie, this song became number one on okay. the Billboard's Alternative Songs. And right. it came out with three different music videos based on the budding popularity from this movie. Okay. Um, so I have the lyrics here, and I think we're going to need to make a new category for it. And Ah, okay, interesting. So, Let me open up the Google Doc as well to be ready for this. Yeah, okay. So I had mentioned in a previous episode that there was a category that I was going to eventually tap into that I really wasn't sure how to tackle it. And maybe we could change the wording for it eventually, but it's just this kind of concept. And the song that was really getting me stuck on it that we haven't covered yet is The Best of Me by Starting Line. Because the okay. song starts with, tell me what you thought about when you were younger and so alone. You can have the best, of, or the worst is over. You can have the best of me. So it's sort of this like nostalgic love. Yeah. And also in some songs by like Arcade Fire, nostalgia and sort of like childhood is sort of romanticized. And I feel like this song by The Temper Trap does a very similar thing. It's not as toxic as self-destruction of love. Okay. But it is about love. So mm. I'm going to open up the emerging trends. And then I'm going to read the lyrics and we can talk about it. And you can let me know what you think. Sure. So I'm going to put this in here. Sweet Disposition by The Temper Trap. And it was in like a hundred commercials after this movie came out. Okay. Yeah, it was in every commercial that ever existed. I spelled that wrong. Sweet Dispotion. I wrote Sweet Dispotion in this. No, I'm still spelling it wrong. There we go. Okay, so now I'm gonna read the lyrics. Sweet disposition, never too soon. Oh, reckless abandon, like no one's watching you. A moment, a love, a dream aloud. A kiss, a cry, our rights, our wrongs. A moment, a love, a dream aloud. So stay there, cause I'll be coming over. And while our blood's still young, it's so young, it runs and won't stop till it's over. Won't stop to surrender. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean when I was saying about the sort of like romanticized youth? Yeah. I think that's just a perfect category, romanticized youth. You think so? Yeah, just romanticized youth. Okay. Because there was something, and I knew we were going to come to it eventually, I just couldn't figure it out, and then when I was looking at the songs for this movie, I was like, this is going to hit it, whatever it is. And I think that we'll come to a lot of other songs that do do that, like we said, Starting Line, but Arcade Fire does it a lot. Um, yeah. All American Rejects, very early on in their career, is very much about this. Yeah. Yeah. So let's... Add that one. Okay. And we've added a new category. So now, should I read off the categories again? Yeah. All right. So the categories for our emerging trends in alt-rock from the 2000s, we have mutual or self-assured destruction and love, denouncement of society, parentheses nonconformity, take whatever you throw at me, garbage person, not being okay, 
and escapism, which is kind of similar to romanticized youth, but still feels different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I have a question. I just thought What's about up? what the what the song when we when you were young would that be romanticized youth? Yeah, I think that's a really good example of it. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and also we talked in great length about finally adding "Shake It" by Metro Station. <laughs> And then Trey Cyrus is just like, um, yeah, take off your clothes and your socks and leave your shoes at the door. But does she take it like this? Does she do it like that? Can we just put her at garbage person then? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, because, frankly, the other lyrics don't imply much else. Can I say that I love that this... I'm gonna... <laughs> Shake Shake is going to be a common joke for us from now on. Yeah, get ready, guys. You're going to hear this song quite a bit. Shake, 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 shake. shake. Now take off your clothes and just leave them at the door. Shake, 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 It's such a strange song. I, I didn't realize that I had never listened to it in its entirety because I just thought the entire song was the chorus. Yeah, well, it, that's pretty much how it gets sold as, but like... We could literally put anything, like you said in the scene episode, anything horrible at a low, like, just like, that's when I took out my What knife. were you doing last night? I, I, I was down then. <laughs> All's forgotten because party. Yeah. Yeah. It could be like, um, we, uh, we got out of work and then we started fighting. And but the stupid like this stupid like that. So, uh. Yeah, I mean, um, after that episode, I was like, you know, we, we have not actually added Shake It by Metro Station to the list, and we have to. Yeah, it's a garbage person song. It's um, it's a classic garbage person song. Yeah. When we're done with this list, I don't know when that's going to be, when we like actually compile a lot of it, we should just uh, make it a playlist. Beautiful. Yeah. Matter of fact, I, we could start now and just we could. add weekly. So guys, if you want to listen to the songs that we talk about from these episodes and we'll continue to talk about, if you want to, if you haven't heard the songs and you want to listen to them, if you have never heard of these songs and you're interested to find out what's going on, uh, we're going to make a playlist about them. Beautiful. Um, well, we got to ask the question. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to ask the question? Tom. Yes. JGL. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this movie would work today in 2020? I think if this movie came out as is today, it'd be made fun of for being a movie about a simp. Yeah, I don't think this movie would do that well. I think it would open up conversations like we had um, if it were made today with today's perspective it might be more open-ended rather than his perspective because that's the thing like i said the biggest the movie's biggest detriment is that it's falling under the circumstances of being made at a time when we're getting all these movies made by you know through the perspective of the male lead mm -hmm. and even socioeconomically like he can afford to quit his job and stick it out and just keep you know still afford his you know his really expensive apartment and keep going from job interview to job interview that wouldn't that alone would not stand up today but that that's the same thing with elizabeth town it's the same thing with garden state like right the that's the it's a and it's an idea that's not aged very well and then the male gaze so it would in certainly be 
it, I think it would certainly hold up better than Elizabethtown. <laughs> certainly would. Yeah, it's strange because, you know, and I had mentioned it in a previous episode that, like, you know, we've talked about Scott Pilgrim and those conversations have changed your view on Scott Pilgrim. And we've talked about 500 Days of Summer before where you present these perspectives that could make me feel bad about 500 Days of Summer, but I didn't. And then once I started it this week, I was like, oh no, I, I think my my opinion of this is going to change. And it did. And I think that that's okay. There are plenty of movies that we grow up with that when we look back on them as we've gotten older, it's okay to think differently of them. Yeah. I do think had this movie been made with a really solid female director, Mm. like let's throw Greta Gerwig in there. Yeah. Let's throw Lulu Wang in there. What if this was directed by Nora Ephron back in the day? Yeah. This, yeah, that could give us a, a more, at least a well-rounded perspective yeah. to kind of paint the picture of a, you know, a doom relationship without, without us automatically sympathizing for the simp. Right. And um, I do want to also add the thing that I've been forgetting to mention before we finish up, like the thing about the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is if it weren't for these movies, you wouldn't have a movie like Lady Bird, which is... I love Lady Bird. I love Lady Bird. And I think what is so great about that movie is it, it captures a time period like the 2000s, but also the kind of character that Saoirse Ronan plays in it is clearly a teenager who was not a Manic Pixie Dream Girl, but looked up to the Manic Pixie Dream Girls. That is true. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I was talking to Alyssa about this, my best friend, when we had separately seen Lady Bird, I was like, oh, Saoirse Ronan's a lot like me. I wanted to be a Manic Pixie Dream Girl. And she sort of confirmed it. She was just like, yeah, that's exactly it. She just wants to be. She she plays the teenager who wants to be the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, without these movies, we wouldn't have Lady Bird. And so I, I do wonder what would happen with 500 Days of Summer that does kind of cover some interesting topics, but just doesn't do it in a way that parallels what's happening now with these sort of conversations. Yeah. It, it introduced interesting ideas that would become bigger conversations. It's just due to being a product of its time, the execution doesn't age as well. But at least it's not Elizabethtown. At least it's not Elizabethtown. Yeah. Yeah. But you did ask me an interesting question. Who's the worst? Who's worse? Yes. Orlando Baylor or Tom? Yes. Orlando Baylor or Tom GL? I think uh, Tom is a more defined character and has more real life flaws, which makes him technically a worse person. But is that anything said compared to Orlando Baylor, who is not a the real person he's just the man who made a murder bike right i think at the end of this after next episode we should rank our favorite manic pixie dream girls and our favorite uh manny Pix manic pixie dream girl movie sad boy protagonists yeah because i'm i'm really stuck on who's the worst one is it tom gl or orlando baylor so uh get ready for a poll because it's coming there's more polls to be had. More polls to be had. Um, we just finished releasing the Resident Evil 4 one, and I was very surprised to see how few people uh, came to the defense of Dante. 
you know what it is? I think if you asked this question a few years ago, Dante would have won hands down. Right. And I think also, whereas Devil May Cry does have a very committed fan base, it's much smaller than the Resident Evil 4 fan base. And also Devil May Cry has had some mishaps with a remake that really just kind of like that, that type of like bad boy, like edgy dark Lord, you know, sort of image has sort of become very cringy and died away. Whereas Leon's like cool suaveness at worst is funny. I was talking to Joe about it because I asked his opinion, opinion last night and he also was for Dante, but I, I actually had to convince him a little bit. And I was like, Dante's the guy you don't want to bring home to your parents. Leon Kennedy, you can bring home to your parents. Yeah, I was Leon all the way. Also, yeah. I mean, like, just the fact that Dante is just, like, a Leon clone. Right. I, <laughs> I, I explained that to Joe, too, because he didn't realize that. And he, he also agreed that if it was a Resident Evil title, he not he would not have played it. It, wouldn't, yeah. it would not have worked. It wouldn't have made sense. And no. uh, he agreed that it should have been its own thing. I'm not saying Dante isn't cool. Yeah. Dante is cool. Right. It's just that Leon is just a little cooler. Everybody came for Leon's defense. It wasn't at first. It was Dante at first. Right. Yeah, exactly. So everybody get ready for another poll. If you're watching these movies with us, if you watched them years ago, get ready for another one. Of Orlando Baylor versus Tom GL, who is yeah. the worst manic pixie dream girl sad boy protagonist. And also, if you want to be caught up, the next movie we're watching is da, Scott da, da. Pilgrim versus the World. Scott Pilgrim. The final. It's the end of the series. Uh, also, I've revisited and been reading the graphic novels. Yeah. And I also got the soundtrack on vinyl. Of course you did, Tom. So I'm going to be fully prepared. And I think there's going to be a lot of interesting conversation because we're going to talk about the movie mainly, but, but the graphic novels. The graphic novels and what else just came out? What else just came the out? The entertainment 10-year oh, anniversary yes. reading that you and I both watched. Yes, we will talk about that as yeah. well. The, graf- the graphic novels, I think, are going to give an interesting perspective because they were written over the span of the Manny Pixie Dream Girl trope. Right. Like, they start in 2004 and end in 2010. Right. So maybe the graphic novels allow some type of growth as it was being written in accordance with these movies. That's a good point. I saw Brian Lee O'Malley in a conversation with Neil Gaiman at Barnes & Noble in Union Square. And that was really fun. It is the closest I will ever get to the two of them. It was it was majestic. That's awesome. Yeah, it was wonderful. All right, guys. And with that, we wanted to say thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check out Scott Pilgrim if you want to be caught up for our last episode in the series. And with that, guys, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check us out on Spotify, iTunes, Google, Bam. Podbean. Bam. 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 And be sure to follow us on Instagram. Courtney, do you want to talk about the Instagram? Yes, on the Instagram, we add extra content for you guys, including polls, animated clips of videos, and some extra content like drinking Monster Energy drinks and cocktails. So uh, if you want to see us cringe a little bit more, go check out our Instagram. Remember the Zero Zeros podcast? That's Remember the Zero Zeros podcast. All right, guys, and with that, stay tuned. We'll see you next week. See you next week for Scott Pilgrim. Bye.
I. You've, you've good taste in music. Like the Smiths. Yeah. Uh, boy, there's no real easy way to say this, but uh, look, you're a simp. <laughs>